I've long been interested in what's called Christian apologetics. That's giving a reason or a defense for your faith. Did you know there were some early Christians who wrote apologetic books, defenses of the Christian faith? But the apologetics of the first three centuries looked very different than the kind of apologetics we're used to today. Not as much focus on, here are the logical steps to argue that God made the world, or here are the reasons to think this or that. Most of the Christian apologetic in the first three centuries were, just watch me. When the gospel is preached, it's going to offend. When you get called before governors or you're put on the witness stand, those who speak against you falsely, they're going to have to make up stories because there's nothing about your life that truly offends. You're listening to Life on the West Side. Here's Nathan Guy. I love the Church of Christ. When God decided to have a people, he wanted to redeem us. He wanted to call us his adopted children. He wanted to call us the bride of Christ. And in Ephesians 5, Paul, speaking on inspiration, says, here's the way that Christ looks at the church. Without a spot or wrinkle or any such blemish. Americans spend on average $3,000 to $3,800 on beauty treatments per person per year. That's, that's a lot of pretty. The beauty industry worldwide rakes in over $100 billion a year. $7 billion on advertising. That means that if we were to find someone without spot or blemish, we would make a $100 billion find and everyone would take notice. So what does the world see when they look at us? I remember the first time I heard this one. Why would I want to go to church? I feel bad enough about myself already. How about this one that I heard from an elder's daughter? Not an elder here who grew up in church, she and her husband are still very influential in helping hurting people. And her line was, Christians are the worst. Now, this negative language that I'm talking about needs to be heard. I didn't make these lines up. These are spoken by actual people, and they're born out of experience. The people have had with other Christians. It's the impression that, according to them, we've left behind. And if you talk with them, you'll hear stories. You'll hear stories about door knockers who introduce them to a cruel and vindictive God. You'll hear about churches where they were abused and elders who covered up the abuse. They'll tell you stories about how they were deceived by preachers who told them if they just give enough money to this ministry, God will cure their child of cancer. They'll tell you about Christians in their neighborhood who advertise everything they're against, but nobody could tell you what they're for. And they'll tell you about people who are quick with a verse to condemn. The whole world 
But when they get into financial trouble or get sick or find their own teenage daughter is pregnant, grace goes out the same window as does their convictions. Oh, the quick and easy response is just that. Quick and easy. Don't judge us by the few Christians you've met who were bad apples. Don't judge us by anything you've seen us do at all. Judge us by the master who is pure and perfect. That's what we want to say. We want to say. But Jesus makes it abundantly clear that we are his body. We are his hands and feet in the world. And your life may be the only Bible somebody ever reads. So let's not be too quick and easy in our response. A number of years ago, uh, Pew Research uh, came out with the results of a poll that said some good news. Most Americans rate Christians warmly. The rate was, rate them from a zero to a hundred, zero being very, very cold and a hundred being extra, extra hot. And most Americans rated Christians at around a 60. Sounds good. A couple of things to consider, though. This was in 2014, and uh, most Americans includes the huge percentage that also claim to be Christians. The Pew Research goes on to say, now I want to make clear, Christians tend to rate other Christians very high. So if you were to take out people who self-identify as Christian and then ask the question, here's what you find. For example, I'm just picking a couple of them. Among those who said that they were Jewish, what do you think about Christians? 34 was the number. Among atheists, how do you feel about Christians like, like you and me? 28 was the number. And a few years before that, on another poll, young people who were not Christians were asked, what do you think about Christians? And they rated Christians at a three. At a three. And then there's how some Christians really view other Christians when the pollsters aren't asking. Sometimes with fear, sometimes with suspicion. And when you put it all together, thinking warmly about Christians just doesn't seem to be a very popular thing in our country with the highest total number of self-described Christians in the world. The numbers are inevitably worse when you look at this worldwide. Why do you think that is? The answer is obvious, isn't it? Because for some people, Christians and the Christianity they represent are offensive. Now, let me say something about that. First of all, the gospel itself can be and is offensive. It was no less than the Apostle Paul who said that the cross is offensive. You look up the word offense or offensive in uh, the dictionary. And it will tell you that the definition is offense means to hold resentment for a perceived insult or disregard for one's own standards or set of principles. Well, by that definition, the gospel is absolutely offensive because the gospel says, I am not the king of my life. There's a king who reigns supreme, who wants to change everything about me from the inside out as I surrender myself to him. So if it means to be insulted, guess what? The gospel says we don't have what it takes to fix our own problems. Of course, the gospel is offensive. 
Isaiah 8 and verse 14 is quoted twice in the New Testament. The second time it's quoted in 1 Peter 2 and verse 8, Peter gives some commentary on it. And he says that God has laid in Zion a stone of offense, a rock of stumbling. And it says, and people are stumbling because they disobey the word. Oh, yes. The gospel is offensive. In Acts 4 and in Acts 5, the priests, including the high priest, and the Sadducees and the temple rulers are greatly annoyed and filled with anger when they see Christianity and they hear the message of the cross. The gospel is offensive. Peter tells his readers, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that's coming your way as if it's unusual. Don't you realize all who live godly in Christ Jesus are going to suffer persecution? And if you suffer as a Christian, glorify God for that reason. And it was Jesus himself who on not one, not two, but on three occasions said that there will be times when you will be hated by all. I think when you announce the good news to hurting outsiders in need of healing, it will be heard as bad news to prideful insiders who think they have nothing to cure. Yes, the gospel of Jesus Christ is an offensive thing. Of course it is. It doesn't just offend me. When it does its work, it leads to suffering and death. But outside the necessary offense of the cross, Christians are different from the rest of the world in this. We are called to offer no additional offense. And this is for practical reasons. Uh, There's a proverb that talks about this. When people are offended, it is incredibly hard to speak any word of truth or good news to them because, as Proverbs says, a brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city. But our calling can be found at an even deeper level. Look at the example of our Lord. Jesus was one time approached by people who were asking, why doesn't your master pay the temple tax? And Jesus had all kinds of reasons to question that. We learn later about how the the whole system in which now the most holy place for hurting people becomes a place where you can't afford to get into. He's upset about all of this. But he says, nevertheless, go down and pull out a fish out of the river. And when you do, you'll find a coin in the fish's mouth and go pay it. And why does he say that? He says, so as we don't give any offense. Not just the example of our Lord, it's a command of God. Look in 1 Corinthians 10, 31 through 33. Paul tells the Christians in Corinth, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please God in everything that I do so that they may be saved. There were no atheists in the first century. Everybody believed in some God. So when you say Jews and Greeks and the church, you're naming everybody. That's everybody. Give no offense to the Jews or atheists who rate you at a 28 to a 34 on the favorability scale. And Paul, Paul doesn't just offer a command without doing all he can to live it out himself. And so in Acts 25, Paul speaks to Festus, the Roman governor, 
And he says to them that his life and his actions and his preaching gave no offense against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. That's not what we do, says Paul. That's not who we are. In fact, just the opposite is what we find in the New Testament. God deeply desires for his people to be at the top of everyone's favorability rating. Maybe you see this language in the New Testament. Men and women are singled out and highlighted by Luke, who writes both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And he singles them out for having favor with God in Luke chapter 1. Verse 28 and verse 30. 28 is a statement from her cousin. 30 is a statement from an angel. And they both say, you are highly favored by the Lord. In Acts 7, Stephen is giving a speech. He's talking about the Old Testament heroes. And he says, King David found favor in the sight of God. And of course, the most obvious verse is Luke 2.52. Our example, Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with people. This model, this model of Jesus himself is almost the exact parallel in number to Luke's second volume. Take Luke 2.52 and compare it to Acts 2.47. And what do you have? You have the one who grew in favor with God and with man. The church is praising God and having favor with all the people. You have to try real hard not to see the parallel there, not to see that the church is the second incarnation of the Christ figure himself. We are to be as hands and feet. Whatever Christ was in the world, the church is called to be in the world. He does it again in Stephen's speech in Acts 7, where King David already found favor with God. Joseph is granted favor and wisdom before Pharaoh. Wisdom and favor with God and with people. That was always the story. That's always been our calling. And when Jesus walks into the synagogue to preach his first sermon, he reads from the scroll of Isaiah, and the statement in Isaiah says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim this to be the year of the Lord's favor. You remember how that story ends? The people at first really like it because they think that means God's going to bless me with all I want. And then he explains the year of the Lord's favor is when God gives to those who are perceived outsiders his loving favor. He describes the year of the Lord's favor as something where the Gentiles and the Samaritans and the tax collectors and the prostitutes, people made in the image of God, being pursued by the love of God, will hear a message that says, we want to include you if you'll give your life to me. Luke has to remember writing that when he gets to Acts 2, 46 and 47, and he says the early church had favor with all the people. It reminds me of a line given to Abraham in the book of Genesis. Yes, I'm going to bless you, but through you, I'm going to bless the whole world. I'm going to open the floodgates. I'm going to bring Gentiles in. I'm going to do something different. In fact, in Acts 2.39, the 
The great good news message, Peter says, is for you and to your children and to all the Lord our God will call. In Acts 5, we have what seems like a parallel passage. And if you look at verse 13, after saying that the apostles were doing many wonders and signs in front of all the people, you may think to yourself, well, that means in front of the church. But look at verse 13. And even though, verse 13, none of the rest dared join them, meaning the church, the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. What do you think contributed to them being added more than ever? Surely, it was that all the people held what was happening and the people doing it in high esteem. It just stands to reason that Luke wants us to imagine the early church in the mold of Jesus Christ praising God and having favor with all whom the Lord our God is trying to call. Now, who would that exclude? And this becomes a very important part of Paul's teaching. It's amazing if you go looking for it. How to the church, Paul says on four occasions, think carefully about how you're perceived by outsiders. And not just when you're outside. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says several times in that section, watch how you act so that if an outsider were to come in, they could say amen to your thanksgiving. And he says, watch how you live out in the world. Walk with wisdom, walk wisely, walk with grace as outsiders are around you. And then this is interesting. Paul told Timothy, when you go picking shepherds for the congregation there, make sure you pick people who were thought well by outsiders. It's interesting. Find people who, like Jesus, have grown in favor with God and with others. I've long been interested in what's called Christian apologetics. That's giving a reason or a defense for your faith. Did you know there were some early Christians who wrote apologetic books, defenses of the Christian faith? But the apologetics of the first three centuries looked very different than the kind of apologetics we're used to today. Not as much focus on, here are the logical steps to argue that God made the world, or here are the reasons to think this or that. Most of the Christian apologetic in the first three centuries were, just watch me. When the gospel is preached, it's going to offend. When you get called before governors or you're put on the witness stand, those who speak against you falsely, they're going to have to make up stories because there's nothing about your life that truly offends. Paul tells Festus, Christians make the best citizens. In fact, why wouldn't we? Not only are Christians not offensive, we're not easily offended. Proverbs makes this point very clear. Would you listen to a letter written by a Christian in the second century, giving a defense of the way of life? The difference between Christians and the rest of mankind is this. Though destiny has placed them here in the flesh, they don't live after the flesh. Their days are passed on earth, but their citizenship is above in the heavens. 
They obey the prescribed laws, but in their own private lives, they transcend the laws. They show love to all men, and all men persecute them. They are misunderstood and condemned, yet by suffering death, they are quickened into life. They are poor, yet making many rich. Lacking all things, yet having all things in abundance, they repay curses with blessings and abuse with courtesy. It was J.W. McGarvey who, in his commentary on Acts, said they had favor with all the people because that was a natural consequence of the admirable lives they led. I get a little tired of our response to people who don't like Christians being any attempt to draw the attention away from us. That's not what we're called to do. We're called to live lives so full of glad and generous hearts, so like the Master, that people can't help but be attracted to the beauty of Christ when it's seen in me, especially toward outsiders. You may be the only Bible that somebody ever reads. I love this line that we're going to close with. Christians are called to live a life that needs God's love to explain itself. So let's be winsome to win some. Let's live lives before others that they may see our good works and not think to themselves, boy, am I glad I'm not one of them. They'll think to themselves, I want to praise the God who set them on fire because I want what they've got. Let us be Christ to a lost and dying world. Thanks for joining. No one has ever loved you like Jesus Christ. I hope you feel that love in every sermon that's preached on this podcast. You can find more sermons, transcripts, study guides at nathanguide.com. Please stay tuned for another lesson and rest in the love of Christ.